Welcome to the Female Pilot Club podcast. If you don't know us, we're a plucky band of lumpy jumpers helping female written sitcom scripts take off and fly against the almost insurmountable odds presented by the TV commissioning system. And if you do know us, we're like a three-headed version of Munch's The Scream. Poor woman, such an unflattering pick. But to be fair, I've had selfies worse. What about you, Emily? Oh, I definitely have. I'm Wing Commander Case Donham and co-piloting today is Emily Chase. Now, as it's a new series, we've decided to dispense with that tired old joke about the scaly brat. Thank God. And let Emily actually talk about the roller coaster which is juggling motherhood and a busy career. So, Emily, what's been going on? Are you on a thrilling climb to the peak or about to plunge down to the depth? I'd say I'm about halfway up and crawling, very thirsty, quite hungry, but... Still determined to get there. Well, I never. (laughs) Guest today is writer, actor, (laughs) and stand-up Lee Douglas. Welcome, Lee. Hello. Hi, Lee. (laughs) Lee is a queer Irish comedy girl based in London who makes jokes about lesbians, Disney princesses, and the English. She relishes making the Brits laugh while educating them on a bit of Irish history. Her comedy short "You're All Right, Hun" has won a plethora of awards, including Best Short Short at London Independent Film Festival. Her critically acclaimed one-woman show, Sacrament, has been staged at the King's Head Theatre, Vault Festival and Theatre Upstairs Dublin. Lee also wrote one of the four scripts chosen for a reading in the Female Pilot Club Female Comedy Writers Initiative we ran with UK TV earlier this year. Wow, busy woman. (laughs) I couldn't help thinking, do you make jokes about English lesbian Disney princesses? Oh, I should. (laughs) That sounds really fun. Because as as that came out, I was like... That's the character there, right there. Yeah. (laughs) There's something for your next show. Right there. Okay. So obviously we loved working with you on our initiative, but tell us what it was like to be chosen. Yeah, it was really exciting. I think like the chance to get to really focus in on a script, like which as a freelancer, sometimes it can feel like, you know, things are a bit chaotic and you're struggling to balance things. So I think having the, the kind of framework to really focus in on a single project was really, really useful, um, especially with the kind of like mentoring and kind of notes process that we went through um it gave me some a chance to really invest in that particular script which was a real gift so obviously we at female pilot club know all about your fantastic script queer jig but for the bashers and lumpy jumpers listening who don't can you tell them all about it by giving us your parachute pitch so it's like an elevator pitch, but with much more jeopardy. So the scenario is the plane is on fire. There's only one parachute, which you are wearing. But as you jump out of the plane, the commissioner for Disney Plus grabs onto your legs. So obviously you take the opportunity to sell him, her, they on the idea of making a TV version of the show before you hit the ground. Obviously, being Disney Plus, the commissioner is extremely animated. I'm sorry, I couldn't help that one. So make it... <laughs> Bit of a slow burn, <laughs> We're all sorry. So make it quick before they wriggle you both out of the parachute and you end up flat on the tarmac. Are you ready, Lee? Pitch. 
Okay, so Queer Jig is a family sitcom set in the world of Irish dance, of competitive Irish dancing. And it's led by the lead character of Jerry, who has just left behind her fancy life in London where she was totally overworked to the point of breakdown. And she's moved back in with her family in the Midlands who run the Quinn School of Irish Dancing. Amazing. Well, we'd commissioned that. And in fact, we did for our writers initiative. And what our listeners might not know is that Lee's script was chosen out of 340 that were submitted for the initiative. So well done you. Absolutely. So as well as uh, having a reading with some top flight comedy talent, this initiative evolved quite a full on TV development process, both with us and UK TV. So first, have you ever done anything like that before? Um, And secondly, how did you get on with that process? Um, I'd not done anything I think as formal as that before um, I think in my work in theatre previously I um, I worked very closely with my kind of directing partner I, I as a writer had a director that I worked with and she kind of acted as a dramaturg really when I was developing the writing and then we would kind of change roles into her directing once we got into a rehearsal process um, so I think I really I really learned through that how to take notes but obviously uh working in a kind of tv development context was uh a much I was very glad to have that kind of background because it was a much more intensified version of that process yeah it is an intense process isn't it if you haven't done it before I think writers can be quite sort of taken aback by how much work and how many drafts etc etc but you obviously thrived on it did you learn anything about yourself as a writer I felt like getting the notes, I almost felt like they gave me energy rather than taking it away, which was which was really exciting because it felt like I've been a writer in various forms for my for my whole career. But I think it's been a lot of me at a laptop on my own and kind of rereading things and trying to kind of give myself notes to then try and redraft something. So I think having all of that kind of outside input actually was really exciting to be like, how can I give you what I what you want, but also do what I want? <laughs> Mind game, I see. (laughs) But also, I guess, just having another voice saying, oh, this is great. This, you can do this with, just knowing that it was an outside person who was kind of reassuring. Definitely, definitely. It was really exciting to have that kind of outside input to then prompt more creative decisions that I might not have made on my own. So would you say, were there any useful takeaways that you could pass on to any new writers hoping to write for TV from the UK TV work? Yeah, I think the kind of the the punching up process of making sure that the the gag rate was really high was uh, a new experience for me because I um I'm fairly new to to comedy, specific, like pure comedy, and so uh, I think I put a lot of pressure on my on myself to have that kind of really high gag rate from the kind of first draft and I think it was really useful to have that process of realizing that actually no you can afford in a first draft to really focus on making sure the characters are strong and the structure is there and the plot is there and then you can always go through and do a gag pass later down the line you don't need to put that pressure on yourself kind of from draft one to have it be like joke 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 because actually that can distract you a little bit sometimes from structurally what the scene is doing or what the character's intention is in the scene Um, and those foundations I think really need to be there first actually. I think that's such a great tip actually really good tip because I think a lot of writers underestimate how important really sound structure is for comedy 
you know, uh, because as you say, you get distracted by having a great laugh. Mm. But if the, if it's taking the character somewhere else, if it's taking you away from the plot, if it's you know bringing in some element that shouldn't be there, then it just causes problems further down the line. So apart from uh, growing as a writer, which I think you said you did, what did you gain from the initiative in career terms? Did you find taking part gave you any kind of a leg up in the industry? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think, you know, there have been several times where I've gone into meetings since and people have said, oh, I was actually at the reading, you know, I I saw the script, which is such a different experience than me just sending them the script cold for them to read, you know. So you're obviously an actor as well as a writer. Um, Did you start your career in comedy as an actor or a writer? And do you see yourself now as kind of equally both or are you more focused on one than the other? Yeah, I think it's still something that I'm kind of processing for myself, to be honest. I, I trained as an actor originally um, and then I was kind of I was kind of a year out of drama school when kind of life got in the way a little bit and I had to take some time out to be a carer, which... I never would have expected to happen felt like you know I'd had a lot of kind of heaviness in my life um unexpectedly and so I the idea of I mean I lo- I will always love the theater it will always be my first love but the idea of sitting through some really kind of earnest worthy theater just was not what I needed in my life in that time <laughs> yeah. and so um I saw this course was gonna start with the NFTS and they were taking applications um that was writing and producing comedy and it just seemed like a really exciting opportunity and I remember being in my kitchen with my housemate kind of mid-lockdown when I was doing this application and being like is this insane like I think I I very much see myself as a comedy writer performer I think that's where I've kind of landed on so I think all of the facets of my career kind of tie into that. It sounds like you're doing an amazing job at all of them at the moment. (laughs) So you didn't have any I mean a lot of the writer performers that we see tell us that they basically started writing almost in self-defense really because of the kind of roles that they were offered or they weren't offered good enough roles or enough roles so that obviously didn't happen to you because it sounds like you didn't really get to that point yet before you started writing. I mean I I did do my one woman show kind of straight out of the gate leaving leaving drama school um I was still kind of coming out while I was in drama school and I wasn't sure whether I wanted to be out as an actor or not I kind of knew in instinctively that that was kind of problematic for my casting because I was like do I want to pitch myself as a queer actor or not and I had not really made that decision so I kind of I kind of did the one woman show to kind of be like this is me (laughs) um I suppose I've always felt like I I knew how to pitch myself as a writer and then I could kind of slot myself in as an actor more so what would have been the difference had you had you not decided to come out and do that as a a queer actor how Mm. how do you think that would have changed the kind of way that you'd felt or the way that you'd have been perceived for roles I think looking back when I first left drama school I think I was trying so hard to be castable as like a like a blank canvas because I was so scared of the kind of queer element limiting me that I kind of was just like generic drama school graduate like you know and so I think it didn't really work for me in that in that sense I think Um, that's what so many people try and do and then actually they work out that that the niche is what's going to get them cast exactly yeah yeah definitely um and I think writing has been a big part of getting me there definitely yeah there's that 
tendency to go for like a broad brush. Oh, I could play anything, but actually that doesn't really work for yeah, most people. Yeah, well, that's what it? you think you need to be, yeah, isn't it? Exactly. To fit all the general castings. But then yeah. actually, I think the way to get in more is when you have a specific niche that your agent then knows that you can yeah. put in for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I have a very open dialogue about wanting to be put up for queer parts with my acting agent now, which feels really, it feels so much better <laughs> than kind of leaving it as this like unacknowledged thing that I don't really talk about professionally. Yeah. I think that the relationship with the agent is really important, isn't it? Because if you don't have an open dialogue, so many people, I th it took me a long time to have an agent that I was really comfortable talking to and that I wasn't scared to call up. And yeah. I think having that is really, really important. Absolutely. And like my my acting agent now is so supportive of my stand-up as well. Like he's come to see me do stand-up and things. So that feels really good that he gets that I, I have multiple things going on. Yeah, that's great. So what do you think of the current opportunities available to women in comedy and in the industry in general at the moment? Such an interesting question because I was at... I was at drama school in Dublin when the centenary of Ireland being an independent nation happened and the National Theatre in Ireland uh, commissioned no plays by female writers for their centenary season. Wow. Um, and it was this huge thing, you know, like Meryl Streep got involved at one point being like, this is unacceptable. Um, and I'm, I think I got labeled as this like, in, like, you know, intensely feminist political woman because I was there being like, absolutely not. You and Meryl. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think coming, coming from that to being, um, being in London and Dublin has changed a lot since then as well, but, um, you know, it does feel like progress is definitely being made and there's definitely, you know, a lot of uh, female and um, queer and non-binary creatives who are like 10 years ahead of me who I so respect and I have so much admiration for and I feel like they really kind of forged a path in lots of ways and are helping bring um, people up with them, which is amazing, but I, there's still a really long way to go. Definitely, hundred percent. And there, you know, there are nights as a, especially as a stand-up, where I walk out on stage and maybe I'm like the only woman on the bill, and I'm like, oh god, <laughs> I don't know if this crowd is gonna get behind me. <laughs> but how often do you come away feeling that they haven't? I suppose it's it's probably in in that context where I I'm I'm nervous about a particular a particular audience it's probably like a 50-50 split sometimes people really surprise you and you're like oh my god you do like me um <laughs> not to like Sally feel the situation but um yeah and then other times you're like right well that gig was not about me I think that crowd was just thinks that women are not funny and that's the situation <laughs> and in that situation it would make so much difference if there was just one more woman on the bill wouldn't it oh absolutely and it's so rare to get more than one woman on the bill I mean I I think I definitely like it it doesn't actually happen to me as often that I'm the the only woman because I think that's really been called out a lot but um you really notice the difference when there's at least one other queer person or woman on the bill it's like it just feels like a warmer energy so your script queer jig has some terrific roles for women um particularly women over 45 which is of course partly why it was chosen for our initiative because that's what um UKTV had and ourselves were looking for so what you've done so brilliantly in that script is to use the family setup 
to present the audience with some just fantastic contrasting characters. You've got three sisters, Jerry, Leanne and Anne, and they couldn't be more different, which of course is just brilliant for comic conflict, isn't it? So can you tell us a bit about your process? Did you have these characters pretty much set up that way from the beginning or did they evolve through the development process and just become more and more distinct with each draft? Um, I think I everything that I write kind of has fam often has a families at the center of it I think that's always been something I've been really interested in um and I think I'm you know they say that like some writers are is it some writers are gardeners and some are I'm not getting this metaphor right but whatever the whatever the I don't know the metaphor that I'm talking about is it gardeners and farmers no Potentially yes, but my my thing my point being, I I went to a like masterclass with Simon Stevens when I was like nineteen or twenty, and he literally like has a post it note for each scene, and he plans it out, and it's like it's the whole structure before he starts writing, and I really tried to make myself do that, but unfortunately my brain just does not work that way on any level and so actually totally sympathize about the post-it notes so many people find it so helpful and it does nothing for me whatsoever I just can't I just think I've just got loads of bits of paper now what do I do with that yeah I know some people <laughs> who do it and they're they so really organized do all over yeah. their wall but I when we when I wrote that yeah. thing with you I, I couldn't do it either I could not do that I was like you I would write the bit of the script first and then yeah well, you get the you get the kind of blood and the bones of of it don't you when you're when you're just doing it in that stream of consciousness way and I know that you do have to you know make sure that you do plan it out but I I think it's fine to want to have that sort of a bit more of a visceral connection with the characters I and need the story like a first, runoff to it? it almost like yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think it just depends how your brain's wired, doesn't it? Like, but I think it's partly also the way that the television commissioning process works isn't it because normally then you will get commissioned to write a treatment Right, yeah. and then if the treatment gets accepted, you know, then you might get commissioned to write a script. So that that way of working is kind of embedded in industry practice, really, isn't it? I think you get a lot more fun out of just finding where it's going to go, don't you? Yeah, as a writer, definitely. you enjoy because you don't know where it's going to go. Yeah. So that's where the contrasting characters, I think, kind of comes out of for me as well. Is like you find what the missing voice in the room is. Like, what's the contrasting voice that needs to come up and interrupt this or and then you kind of you've I, I feel like you build your characters that way I was going to ask so anyone who comes from a big family is obviously going to recognize the dynamic of the Quinn family was that part of your experience growing up at all uh yes and no um I'm I'm an only child but my dad had four sisters and a brother so I kind of I grew up with a lot of aunties and uncles and cousins always and these kind of massive chaotic family Christmases um and then we I I was very much in the thick of it for like my primary school years and then we moved away to America and so I would just kind of like be away for six months, not see any of them, and then just be thrust back into this like madness <laughs> twice a year. Um, and so I think I've always been like fascinated by those dynamics because every time I was coming back, I was six months older and being like, oh, I'm seeing things that I didn't see before, you know? So um, 
Definitely, yeah. <laughs> so Queer Jig, as the name suggests, is set in the world of Irish dancing. So Lee, come on, spill the tea. Is that a world that you have experienced yourself? Yes, absolutely. I used to be a competitive <laughs> Irish dancer. <laughs> being incredibly stressed and being like, I can't handle the political dynamics of this Irish dancing school and the other Irish dancing schools. And I literally, I was in a competition the way it works is you have to like you have to win a certain level of competition and then you can get up to the next level of competition it's all very high stakes I was also doing this in America so obviously they're you know when they get into something they really get into something you know and um I was you have to dance two at a time so you're sharing the stage with someone else um and it's like these massive hotel function rooms with like a single man playing the accordion for like every stage. And then there's just oh like these hardwood floors placed down. Loads of people. It's like the din is just, it's so loud. Um, and um, so, yes, I remember I was competing and I was competing at the same time as another male dancer. And he bumped into me when the judges were looking down and they looked back up and saw me stumble but didn't see him bumping into me. And then he won and I didn't. And I was so outraged. I was like, this is the final straw for my Irish dancing career. I'm Tonya for Irish dance. I love the idea of that din and we can't reproduce that din sadly, but we do have a clip from uh, the reading uh, which might give us a little flavour of the world of Irish dance. Here we go. Are my three P's precision, poise, and style. We are T minus 36 days to the West Midlands Championship Fest. Are we going to save the soul of Irish dance from Spear Hogan and Fire and Ice Dance Troop or not? Yes, yes, yes Margaret. Well, not that that lackluster, lethargic, languorous gig like that were not. Spear Hogan's dancers may be flashy and depraved, <laughs> but you better believe their toes will be pointed. <laughs> Good theme talk, yeah, okay, yeah, great, okay. Okay, so that's just illustrated <laughs> the politics of Irish dance yes, right there. Yes. Was it was it as you would imagine the way that they um, the way that they portrayed that school? Yes, absolutely, com- completely. I mean, just bringing such gravitas there to the <laughs> to the to the role of Margaret Quinn. I ca- I so stunning. Something that makes the script stand out are those little touches of authenticity about the world in which it's set. Can you just talk a little bit about how you achieve that in your writing? Um, yeah, I think uh, most of my most of my writing probably is coming from even if it's not like a semi autobiographical in kind of plot or whatever. It's definitely coming from uh, worlds that I worlds that I know, um, and I I suppose I just I love that kind of like campy element of like Amdram and dance moms and all that kind of vibe a world that just is so fun for I was really just having fun that's the reality (laughs) and also it's just very relatable for a lot of people isn't it so you know a lot of people are going to enjoy that humor yeah I think you know there's there's been so many conversations that I've had where like I've bonded with um bonded with people who are very much not professional dancers today but were very invested in a particular dance world growing <laughs> up um you know whether that was Irish dancing or whether it was like tap and jazz um I, I think it, it's, it's pretty it's pretty universal the kind of intensity of it yeah 
I've got to ask, um, why aren't you still doing it? Irish dancing? I think, you know what, I've always, it's been something that I've always been like, should I go back and do it as an adult? And then I've been like, I don't have the time. <laughs> I would love to. Maybe, um, maybe uh, when I'm, maybe when I'm, if I ever retire, I might be like, I'll take it back up, see if the hips can still take it. <laughs> but then you might get really good again, and then some other guy would come along in competition, push you again, oh, when the judges are looking down, and you'd have it all over again. Oh, she wouldn't take it a second oh. time. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, just to remind you why you shouldn't, here is another little clip about Irish dancing. Of her younger self posing with another dancer labeled Jerry and Thea 1993 World, Leanne looks too. It's a shame Thea turned out to be evil. Thea's not evil. Women are only dancing for it's not a crime. She's destroying the face of Irish dancing. It's a travesty. What? They're a bit gassy. Jerry, they use their aunt. <laughs> That is just so it, it, so emblematic of what you were just saying about the tiny little things assuming such incredible significance. Those arms, I love that. And Philippa Dunn was so funny with that, wasn't she? She was so. She funny. just really got it. That I kind of... bet you she did Irish dancing. Do you think? I bet you. There's too much realness. As discussed, the script is called Queer Jig, and it features at least two queer characters. How important was it for you to make sure that your representation of these characters felt authentic, both in the writing and the performance? Um, super important. I mean, I think it's been, um, it's always been really important to me to have queer characters at the center of every story, even if that's not what the story is about necessarily. Um, because I know for me, like if anything new comes up on Netflix or on the BBC or whatever that has anything to do with lesbians, I'm like, I'm watching it. <laughs> and I'm like texting people being like, there's a new lesbian thing. Um, <laughs> so I feel like I get so excited that I feel, and my friends get so excited when there's something new and gay that like, there must be other people there who are like anything lesbian I will be watching um and I suppose yeah a lot of the a lot of those a lot of I mean except for the the l word which kind of like I can't actually believe in retrospect got made when it did like it was so ahead of its time um but um other than that I think a lot of queer stories have been told through the especially like queer female stories have been to told through the male gaze and so I think it's really important to me as a female writer that I'm I get to have my own gaze on it. <laughs> mm. I was just thinking when you were saying that, um, how often do you manage to get excited because there are things on television that that are featuring those kind of storylines that you're looking for? I would imagine not that often. Well, I it? think that's why the level of excitement is there. I mean, like, obviously SNL did that incredible sketch about... Um, a lesbian historical dramas where you know there's a lot of them where it's just like a lot of intense gazing across rooms um in and obviously everyone's in a corset um there's less contemporary stories about lesbians oddly um and I suppose there's a, there's there's been there's been a few documentaries over the last mm. few years. Um, I was trying to think what else. There's Gentleman Jack, I suppose. Yes, like yeah, historical. that's what's to mind. But a, a slightly different vibe. Less less of the like you know tortured gazing in Gentleman Jack definitely mm. than um, mm. than in a lot of others. Yes, yeah, it's, it's quite sort of fun and yes, positive, more, isn't it? More queer joy, yeah, which we love exactly. to see. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. But no, there's not a lot. You're right. Yeah, not a lot. And you manage, which I really like, to present like an array of funny 
yet believable reactions to Jerry's relationships and lifestyle, including from Jerry herself. Um, and they felt real. And though they weren't always positive about what she was doing, they totally avoided the common tropes, which I thought was just so fresh. I really, really loved the, your writing for that. So do you have any tips for other writers who want to portray queer characters? Anything you can give them a tip about? I think, I suppose it really depends whether the writer themselves is queer or not. Um, I think if you, obviously if you are a, a queer writer writing queer characters, then you know what you're doing. It's authentic to your experience and just don't try and write what you think people want. You might think people want a coming out story and that's what you kind of get to write as a queer character, as a queer writer. I, I think just like write authentically about what interests you and what you want to see. Um, and then if you're if you're a straight writer writing queer characters, I think it's really important to speak to the queer people in your lives and be like, if I were to write a queer character into this, like what would you want to see from them? Like what storylines would you want for them? But is it a bit like, you know, as a, as a queer person, do you like not want people to say, oh, look, give me a bit of help with, you know, sometimes I think people can be worried about asking mm. people because, you know, they don't want to just be a resource. I've definitely had it where I've been, say, out for drinks and a friend of a friend felt entitled to ask me incredibly invasive questions about my orientation and my kind of sexual identity which I was like we just met hon like <laughs> what thing makes you think you're entitled to this information and not even for <laughs> the writing or anything just for fun um so that is that is uncomfortable I think I, I suppose it all depends on like and you know this is something that I definitely think about when I'm trying to write um you know characters that I do are diverse in different ways into my scripts that I might not have the experience of so if I'm trying to write a person of color into a into a story then obviously it's something to think about of like how much labor are you asking of from that person so like if you're asking them to um, read your whole script and give you notes on it like that is a huge ask and it might not necessarily be something that's appropriate um, whereas I think you know I'm if someone was like, I'm going to write a lesbian into this story, um, can I ask you for some pointers about things that you think would be exciting or not exciting? I'm always happy to have, speaking for myself, I'm always happy to have that conversation. Yeah, so you've written uh, Jerry, who was a brilliant character. And what I loved about her was that she had, um, she had her problems with her relationship and she had her problems with her choices but they were very much um, approached from the, from the same sort of choices that she would have had, uh, relationship problems that she would have had if she, if she was straight. So that's what I really liked about it. It felt like those were authentic to women of her age, basically. Um, but there was other characters in the story who also had their own approach, especially to being like queer allies. And one of them was trying a little bit too hard, weren't they? Um, so we're going to have a lovely, <laughs> lovely clip now of the delightful Arabella Weir. Quinn, as I live and breathe. Oh, Mrs. Halliday. Yeah. Well, Anne says you were still here. Good to see you. Eliza, please, you're making me feel positively ancient. It seems that yesterday you were bouncing around these unhallowed halls. And I hear you're a lesbian now, Geraldine. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I knew you were when you were here, of course. After your essay on the Scarlet Letter, I thought to myself, inside that girl is a Sussex lover desperate to get out. 
Thank you. Do you know there were at least six girls between you for a sexual awakening? Well, I'm not sure about that. Who's your dance, Geraldine? Oh, no, no. I uh, hang up the dancing shoes. Oh, well, I never understood that. A truly mystical performance quality. And you abandon artistic life for a career in finance, of all things. Well, yeah, I mean, it seemed a good idea at the time. Anyway, um, it's been really nice to see you, Mrs. Um, <laughs> Eliza, good girl. Now, would you never consider teaching? It's about time we had an out-and-out psych on the faculty. And I mean no offence by that word. No, no, none taken. You, you see, I was friends with the bikes back in the 70s. I had many a pleasant ride with a bike on a bike. You know, it was one of my life's great disappointments to discover that I was, in fact, heterosexual. <laughs> oh, man, that must have been so hard. So the wonderful Arabella Weir, <laughs> so brilliant. She talked, you she that talked to that part. Didn't she? <laughs> <laughs> she really did. I mean, I had I had far too much fun writing Miss Halliday. So I think it's only fair that the actor really take it and run with it. <laughs> Are you going to tell us you had a Miss Halliday at your school? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I had several. I mean, uh, yeah, uh, lots of colourful teachers, yeah. <laughs> well, she was a very realistic. <laughs> she, was, she was very realistic. What's great is that you kind of set up how they might deal with that, didn't you? Um, and we've seen how they've dealt with Jerry. So we, we know there's going to be some, you know, some fun stuff, but also that it's going to be warm and they're going to be you know, behind, behind yeah. that journey. Yeah, absolutely. Which is really, I think, heartwarming, isn't it? You yeah, know, absolutely. Positive. I mean, I think like, you know, if you're operating from the basis of this is a family where everyone loves each other, that, you know, a lo spending a long weekend on all in each other's company might be a bit of a stretch, but fundamentally they all love each other um, and they're operating from a place of love, but that doesn't mean that there is not going to be awkwardness when, you know, um, kids are growing up and are saying, actually, this doesn't doesn't fit me I think I fit more into this um and you know I, I think I think it's actually more universal than just the queer experience of for parents and aunties and grandparents to have the experience of being like oh I thought you were like this gir little girly girl and maybe that's not who you are maybe my picture of how you were going to grow up and who you were going to grow up to be I now have to kind of adapt that like I don't think that's specific to being queer or being non being non-binary not that I can specifically speak from the non-binary experience myself but um I think it's I think it's something that more people I think people with straight kids also have to navigate. <laughs> yeah, it's a broader experience, isn't it? Than than just definitely that relatable one. for a lot yeah. of people. Oh yeah. yeah, but what's nice is as you said, you've 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 made that family approach it with love, so you feel comfortable to be able to laugh at the situation because you think, oh, it's going to be okay, and everyone's going to be supported, and it's all going to be. And actually, the good. comedy kind of comes from everyone trying too hard to get it right and still accidentally getting it wrong, but the. The joke is on the awkwardness of the person, not from like malintent. Well, I wonder how, you know, if Queer Jig gets made, how will the Irish dancing community relate if it's something which hasn't been done before? How will they react to it, do you think? I think it's something that like, you know, every every little subculture is going to have to get used to, really. Um and I love Irish dancing. I love the world of Irish dancing. Um but I yeah, I think it's I think it's time to 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 move forward. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Time to embrace the silk shirt and trousers. 
Exactly. Yeah. On whatever kind of person wants to wear it. Absolutely. So you're now a stand-up as well as an actor and a writer. So what does the experience of standing in front of an audience and having to, you know, get that laugh or not get that laugh bring to your comedy writing? I think it gives great discipline because you can you can write a script in your like comfy house with your cup of tea and you can be like oh my god yeah like this is really funny when actually there's like a two minute gap with there's no jokes whereas like if you're on stage that two minutes without any punchlines is going to feel like an eternity and you will not win that audience back and so I think it really it kind of gives you a sense of timing of when you need the next punchline to be coming, which I think is so useful. And it must give you enormous confidence in the jokes you've written as well. If you have to argue for them with a script editor or whatever, <laughs> not that you did. No, but you can say, look, I did it on stage last night. And got a yeah. Um, I suppose what doesn't help though is that you can do the same joke on stage two nights in a row and with a different audience one night it can get a laugh and another night it might not but I wouldn't go with that argument and do do you enjoy it or is it more like a face your fear thing I think to start off with it was absolutely like a fight or flight response like it felt like I was really pushing myself out of my comfort zone whereas I've been going for about I suppose in in like in stand-up terms it's still not that long but I've now been going for two years so I think now I have a bit more confidence around me and so now it's I think it's in the last like six months I think it started to get really fun. Where have you had your best gig? I suppose to give it a little plug I'm often at the Queer Comedy Club which is actually here in Archway and it's so lovely and it's so like I I absolutely want to push myself to be able to like make rooms full of proper lads laugh but it's also so nice to go to queer comedy club and it be like a majority queer audience and almost get to have like little in jokes with them um and yeah absolutely like so fun <laughs> and the hardest one the hardest one definitely when I gigged in my hometown oh, oh no. no and the entire front row was my 19 year old cousin's senior cup rugby team and there's nothing I've never bombed in my life like <gasps> I bombed in my hometown and this just all oh, the having like teenage boys look at you with kindness and compassion is there anything worse <laughs> where they're like smiling to be kind because they pity you (laughs) horrific horrific yeah oh dear that sounds very painful oh yeah it was yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) will you be going back there I think I need to I think I think I just completely psyched myself out because I I knew where I was and I also knew that like I look exactly like all my aunties so like it regularly happens when I'm in my hometown that people know who I am but I don't know who they are because they're like ah yeah she's a Douglas like she looks like you know all of her aunties so I'm just I feel like I always feel like there might be spies (laughs) even if I don't recognize them just like watching me so but that's um, really hard though that you knew the whole was it the whole front row or something there was loads of them there yeah and they they yeah my my poor cousin was there to support me I think he was absolutely mortified because he didn't realize all of his friends were gonna be there cringing <laughs> just thinking about yeah, it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. character building for mm. me anyway um <laughs> so talking of um all the different things you do yet something else that you've done is to write a film 
A short, um, yes. A short. Oh, you know. But it's uh, <laughs> it's had nominations, hasn't it? It's had two nominations at the Ignite Film Festival recently. So do you want to talk a little bit about that film? What's it's it had about? about six nominations or something in total. Yeah. In total, yeah. It's been, yeah, it's been really fun. Um, yeah, it won, um, it won at the uh, Women in Comedy Film Festival in Atlanta, which was really exciting. Um, and at the London Independent Film Festival as well. So that was really, really cool. Um, yeah, and it's, um, it's about... It's it it's probably like the most auto autobiographical thing I've ever written. It's about basically my um my experience of being a carer for my dad, um, but shown through a comedic comedic lens. So it's it's quite dark comedy, but it is it is very much a comedy. Um and yeah, I mean I I absolutely I had a I had a mentor when I was when I was writing that and I absolutely have to thank her for kind of pushing me to to go there because I think I brought her some different ideas and um a Brona Titley who was my mentor was like I think that I like I know what you know your life has been for the past two years and I feel like this is what you should write about if you want to um and so I absolutely have to thank her for pushing me to do that where I think comedies I just I love comedy because it's it can get you through the best times and the worst times can't it laughter is an amazing medicine absolutely yeah Um, So it seems like now you've got so many different strings to your bow. Where do you see your career going ideally in the next five to ten years? Like what's your kind of dream? Uh, I suppose my dream, not to be too derivative, is to be like a lesbian Sharon Horgan. Uh, I would love to, at some point, I would love to, you know, write a sitcom for myself to act in and cast myself because if no one else is going to cast me, I might as well cast myself. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that that would be the dream. And produce yourself, in fact, is what, because she's also got the company, hasn't she? Yes, Merman she does. Film. She does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Which has made great. incredible things. Yeah. Amazing. It's a fantastic company. It's a really brilliant project. Mm. So, Lee, you, of course, are a member of Female Pilot Club, which is very exclusive. We don't let just anyone in. We let everyone, literally everyone in. Literally everyone can get in. But what other great woman of comedy would you like to nominate for membership? It can be a writer, producer, performer or stand-up from the history of comedy whose only crime was a lumpy jumper. I would like to nominate Ali Wong. I love her. Um, I think because I, I first kind of was aware of her through watching her stand-up specials um, and then obviously Always Be My Maybe as well. And I think she has actually a bit in one of her stand-up specials where she talks about the fact that she's actually like really demure in real life and this whole like people are really surprised that actually in her day-to-day life she's quite quiet and reserved and like... Um, I think that really struck a chord with me because it was when I was just thinking about like getting into comedy and I think she really she's so funny but she also is just like I feel like there's not anywhere that she's unafraid to go and be like really brash and um, talk about her sex life and I think she was a really big part of me feeling like I could step into like a stage persona or a comedy writing persona that um, might feel a bit scary for me as a person, but that I like as a woman could go to places that felt maybe slightly off limits. Um, And so 
yeah, I feel like she she gave me she gave me permission in lots of ways. <laughs> Definitely, that's a great shout. Actually. Yeah, amazing <laughs> nomination. She's yeah, I think she's terrific. brilliant. Well, that sound means it's time for us to open our traps, drop our landing gear, and prepare for the friction of rubber on tarmac. <laughs> Sorry, Emily. But we'll be back soon to take another intrepid female writer up to the sparkling world of TV comedy so she can come back covered in scars. Stars. I know what I mean, Emily. Goodbye. Thanks to our guest, Lee Douglas. Thanks, Lee. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Lee. Goodbye. Goodbye from Female Pilot Club. Why not follow us at Female Pilot Club on Twitter and Insta? It was edited and technically produced by Adam Bromley, with music composed by Tim Sutton and starred the comedy voices of Jem Brister, Dervla Malloy, Robin Holdaway, Rhea Norwood, Philippa Dunn and Arabella Wynn. If you enjoyed the show, please do like, subscribe, share and review. Until next time, up, up and away. 